Good morning. Fantastic. Ah, light. Lovely. Well, good morning. And uh, let me add my welcome to you, uh, particularly if you're a visitor, you're not normally with us on a Sunday morning. It's great to have you. My name's Steve. It's my privilege to share the message this morning. And uh, I want to tell you something about myself, okay? It's a very important fact. It might be a revelation for some people. I'm not really that into DIY, okay? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not really, you know, the church handyman. You know, if you want uh, weights lifting and gravel moving, Karis is your lady, obviously, as she shared this morning. But, um, you know, that's not really me. I don't sit at home flicking through the Screwfix catalogue or spend my Saturday afternoons wandering around B&Q. I'm not the person that people go to when they have a shelf to be put up. Do you know, I think I'm probably more the kind of person people go to when they have a dissertation to read. In fact, I would go so far as to say, and I did have a couple of years as a student worker, but I think I probably have read more dissertations in my time than I have put up shelves. Okay, you know, these hands are more used to holding pens than screwdrivers. So I'm not, I'm not a kind of DIY sort of person. But I do appreciate good inventions. And I think it's one of those things that the British as a nation we're good at inventing things, you know? I kind of have that, that vision of the, the sort of middle-aged to old man, you know, tinkering away in a shed, inventing this incredible thing that is, you know, you wonder, oh, how come nobody ever invented it before? I think I love hearing stories from, um, you know, say, World War II and things like that about how people just came up with really ingenious, basic solutions to solve really fundamental problems. I think we're really good at inventing things. And I think we're also quite good at reinventing things. And I don't mean inventing the same thing someone else has already invented, that's just plain theft. But I mean where, where something's come to the end of its natural life. And, and I, I kind of love the way that people then give it a new lease of life and uh, a new use. They reinvent it. And we've got some examples, hopefully, on the screen here of things. So here you have something. Once upon a time, it was a fire engine, but it has been kind of uh, transformed into a coffee stall. You know, that's, that's genius, isn't it? That's great. What a great use. Something's come to the end of its life, and we found a new use for it. There's, let's have a look at the next one. There's a bike. You know, so somebody clearly used to be a cyclist, decided he no longer wanted to annoy pedestrians and cars, and decided to transform his bike into a sink. It sat there in his bathroom. You know, that's just great. What, have we got another one? There's a car, so that used to be a mini, and now it's a desk. Someone decided, you know, it's, it's no good for driving around anymore. I'm going to use it as a desk. What a cool desk. You'd like to go to work, wouldn't you, if that was your desk? You'd think, yes, come on, I'm going to drive some administration today. And, and what we've got, So here's a phone box. Here's a, people on this side of the room, if you just bear with me for a couple of minutes, I need to talk to these people over here. So once upon a time... <laughs> There was a thing called a phone box, and it wasn't, what your, it wasn't what your iPhone arrived in, the postman brought it in. It was a thing that people used to go to to make phone calls. That once upon a time, you used to like arrange to meet people in a week's time, and that was it, and you just turned up. And, uh, and, and if you wanted to make a phone call, you literally had to go to a phone box, put some money in it, it didn't take contactless. Uh, really old ones, you had to press a certain combination of buttons. That's what a phone box is. And phone boxes... Okay, we're back in the room now. Phone boxes have, um, have kind of 
you know, coming to the end of their natural life and have been reinvented as all sorts of things. This is a library. You know, someone's, there's a phone box in a village somewhere and people have changed it into a library. And I think these sort of things are genius. Having said that, I can foresee that there might be some problems with this kind of thing. So, for example, imagine there was a fire. Okay, there's a fire here. But it's okay, because look, there's a fire engine. So you run to the fire engine. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, yes, are you thirsty? No, no, there's a fire. Sorry, I don't understand. You'd like a skinny soya macchiato? Yeah, it's not going to work. Oh. It's all right, though, because look, there's a phone box. I can ring the fire brigade. Run to the phone box. Ah, hello, sir. What can I tempt you with the latest Jeffrey Archer? No, no. Oh, it's okay. There's a car. I'll drive. Well, you know where this goes. <laughs> sometimes, you know, things like that are really clever, but sometimes it's good when things serve the purpose for which they were made. And as we've been spending these past few weeks reading the book of Joshua, one of the, the themes that has come up and one of the words that has been mentioned a few times is the word consecration. And consecration, really, it describes something being set for a particular purpose. In our example this morning, it would be fire engines being set apart to put out fires, phone boxes being there for people to make phone calls. Consecration describes this process. And for the, the people of Israel that we've been reading about, it's about them being connected with God, about being directed by God, about relying on him. They have set themselves apart for God. And as a result, we've seen, you know, incredible crossing the, the River Jordan, miraculously entering into the Promised Land, taking the land of Jericho. And here this morning, we're coming up to chapter 7 to see whether Israel can maintain this attitude of consecration. And hashtag spoilers, it doesn't actually go all that well as we get to chapter 7. So we're going to read verses 1 to 13 of Joshua chapter 7. It says, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the, man, and the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. Uh, and the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord our God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. 
They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. We'll stop there at verse 13. And let's pray and ask God to help us this morning to really hear what's on his heart for us. Father, we thank you for the great way in which you've been moving among us already this morning and been speaking to us and helping us to respond to what you've been saying and what you've been doing. And fundamentally, Lord Jesus, what you did on the cross those years ago and what you want to do in our lives today. And we pray, Lord, as we come to look at your word, Lord, that we would hear your heart, that we would get your heart this morning, that you would cause faith to rise up in us, that you would cause vision to come to our lives, Lord, to enable us to to live the life that you have for us, to know that we can do it with your help. Lord, I pray that you help me share your heart clearly and effectively, Lord God, and that together we may a response to you this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So after the, um, the highs of the past few weeks where we've been looking at the victories won by Israel, we kind of come crashing down to, uh, to the ground this morning. And we read about one man sinning. We read about a nation being defeated and the consequences of that. But crucially and importantly, we're going to look at this this morning, how it was made right. So don't leave halfway through because you'll miss the best bit, Okay. And, uh, and really, this is about uh, consecration and whether Israel could maintain that attitude of being consecrated and set apart for God. Or to put it another way, and this is my first point this morning, could they let God be God? Consecration is all about letting God be God, letting him have his way and his will in their lives and in our lives too. And, you know, after six chapters in which... You know, they, you, they saw the benefit and the blessing and the victory that came when they let God be God, when they let God speak, when they relied on God for the victory. In just the first three verses of chapter 7, we read three different ways in which they forget to let God be God. So in verse 1 of chapter 7, we read about the sin of Achan. Now in chapter 6, God had said to Joshua, when you take Jericho, when you take the city of Jericho, everything that is in that city belongs to me. It uses the expression devoted. It belongs to God. It is devoted to him. It's not a free-for-all for Israel to go looting and you know, choosing, dividing up the spoils of war or anything like that. It belongs to God. But we read about one man, Achan, who sees something he likes and he takes it. Something that should have been devoted to God, Achan steals it for himself. He doesn't let God be God. But this isn't just about Achan, because in verse 2, we read about Joshua. Now, again, through the first six chapters of this book, time and time again, we have read about how, how God directed Joshua and the Israelites 
about what they should do. And sometimes it, it wasn't always you know, obvious or the most strategically significant thing to do. Okay, you're on the eve of the battle. What are you going to do? We're going to consecrate. We're going to circumcise, sorry, all the men. Oh, here is Jericho, and it's rich for taking. Go now, go now. No, wander around it 13 times before you attack it. God spoke, and things didn't always make sense, but actually God came through in the end. But here in verse 2, we read about Joshua, not seeking God, our Lord, what should we do now? but just de- deciding, Israel, we're going to go up and take AI. And it, you know, strategically, it was a sensible move. But instead of looking for God to give him direction, Joshua decided to take on God's mantle. But instead of letting God be God, Joshua said, well, I'm going to direct the people. So you've got the problem in verse 1 of devotion, the problem in verse 2 of direction, and then in the ver- verse 3, we come to the problem of dependence. So again, the, the history of their success and the victory of Israel to this point has been one of relying on God. It's been about God coming through for them, for parting waters, enable them to take land, about walls come tumbling down supernaturally. And here in verse 3, we read about the men going to Ai to scout it out and coming away and saying, it's easy. My nan and Auntie Flory could take that town. You don't need to send lots of people. We can do it. It wasn't about relying on God or saying, oh, God can do this great victory, but, but about this by saying, yeah, we can take them. So they forgot to let God be God, whether it's about devotion, direction, or dependence. And I think if you, if you kind of know the book of Joshua and you've heard it preached through before, I think often when people come to this chapter, they, they see it as being about hidden sin. You know, using the story of Achan and what happened there and about the effect that hidden sin can have on our lives. You know, when we've got unconfessed, undeclared sin in our life, it means that things don't go well for us. And that's certainly true. Or, or you know, in a church context, why are we not growing like we want? Well, there's sin in the camp just as happened there. And, you know, that's a kind of valid application. But the issue for what Achan did was not that it was hidden, but that he took something that belonged to God. He stole from God. What he took belonged to God. Now, fast forward to the 21st century and to our lives, and what's the application for us in terms of you know, stealing things that are devoted to God? Well, you know, we could think about, for example, tithes and offerings, and the Bible does talk about the fact that when we don't give God what we should, in our finances that we're stealing from God. But in terms of devoted things, you know, it's not about kind of silver plates or the spoils of war. The things for us as 21st century Christians that are supposed to be devoted to God, well, it's us. We are the things that are supposed to be devoted to God. And we are the things that we can steal away from God. And there are a number of ways in which we can do it. We can do it in ways like... Joshua and the men of Israel did, when we say to God, no, Lord, I'm not going to let you direct me. You know, God has got such a great heart and such a great plan for each and every one of us. I think it's, it's just so wonderful and so incredible that God cares about the big things in our life. You know, he cares about these things, about where we're going to live and who we're going to live with and, and all those sort of big details. But he also cares about the really specific things. I'm so blessed. You know, sometimes at work, I'm doing a bit of work and I'm writing a report and I, I just feel like God lays on my heart to do it in a certain way. Or when I come to lead my city group week after week, just time and time again, I feel like, you know, God has a way for me to do this. 
this week. God cares about the direction of our lives, and he has a heart, and he has a plan. But we steal from God when we don't allow him to speak that, whether we say, no, God, I'm not going to listen to you. When we don't seek his guidance, when we do what seems right in our own eyes, we steal from God. We refuse to let God be God. Or like the men who were thought that they could do it in their own strength. Again, there are so many ways in which you know, we, we look at the great things God has for us and say, yeah, you know, I can do that. I can do that because I'm an alpha male, because I'm, I'm not really, because I'm, you know, tough and I'm strong and I'm all these things. Uh, reference the early discussion about the Screwfix catalog. Um, but, but when we look to, to kind of not rely on God, but to do things in our, our own strength, we rob God of the opportunity to do a great victory. We rob God of the opportunity to have glory in our lives. When we take, a, take ourselves away from God, then we steal from him, just in the way that Achan did. You know, there are so many ways in which we can do that. When we sit, you know, in church with our arms folded and we say, God can't do that. Maybe that's true for them, but it's not true for me. We steal from God. You know, the, the history of the Bible, the history of the church is full of the lives of ordinary people that God has done great things for, great things in. God does great things through. So, so why not us? What, are we too ordinary? Are we not ordinary enough? What is the problem? You know, when we take a step back and we say God can't, then we steal ourselves away and we rob God of the opportunity to do a great victory in our lives, to get the glory through the transformation that he brings in our lives. You know, I think that there are so many things that are exciting about about following God, about being a disciple of Jesus and being a, a believer. But for me, one of the, the exciting things is you never stop growing. You never stop changing. You never stop learning. And I can appreciate for some people this might be a frustration. But you never get to, to a point as a Christian where you think, yeah, do you know what? I think I know everything I need to know. I think I've cracked this holiness thing. I can put my feet up now and just wait for the Lord to come again. They, we're always more of God. You know, the more of God that you have come to understand, you realize there is more of God to know. The more that God does in your life, you realize there is so much more I need you to do, Lord. It is, you know, like when you, when you climb a mountain. Okay, I've never climbed a mountain. I've been up some big hills, but, we, you know, I hear when you climb a mountain and you, get, and you think, oh, I've nearly reached the summit. And then you kind of come through the clouds and you realize, oh, there's a whole other bit that's about the same height again as I've already climbed. And the further you go, you realize there is more and more and more. And the Christian life is like that. And I think that's so exciting. Always learning, always growing, always seeing God do more and more in our lives. Because God is able. Because God is able and God wants to. You know, I thought that was a great encouragement from Jed this morning, about God's heart, God is willing, God is able to do that. And I think it's interesting, the, the timing of, of chapter 7 of Joshua and how it comes after, you know, these incredible victories that we've been talking about and reading about the past few weeks and about how, you know, they, they've experienced the, the blessing and the victory that comes when you let God be God. And I wonder whether there's an element of, well, you know, we crossed the, the Jordan, and we've entered the promised land, and we've taken Jericho, and we're done now. And I wonder whether there's an element that they forgot that victory is not an event, it's a lifestyle. It's not about a one-off thing that we look for, for, you know, God's help in this, and then we just get on with normal life. Victory is something God brings to our life 
every day. You know, Ben's already reminded us that a year ago to this day, Paul and Anna stood at this bit in the front of church and they made their commitments to one another. And they said that they, they, those commitments were for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad. That, that the marriage commitment is not for just the good times and not even for the bad times. And it's the same with our relationship with God and letting God be God in devotion and in direction and dependence. It's not just when things get tough that we look to God and say, Lord, will you give me instruction here? Lord, I can't do this. Will you come through? Oh, you know, things are really tough. I better spend more time praying and seeking God. It's a lifestyle. It's a right response to God, to, to seek God for his direction, to you know, rely on him in all circumstances in all circumstances. You know, a few years ago when I, um, I, I, was, uh, I was applying for a job and I needed to get a job and I, uh, you know, spent quite a lot of time seeking God and praying for his provision and kind of guidance about, you know, what job should I apply for and things like that. And, and praise God, you know, God really came through and got me a job. But I, I sort of learned something in that process and I resolved, you know what, I'm not going to wait until... I, you know, I'm next in a situation where I need a job to, to kind of go through this. And, and from that point, I think I said this before, like every day when I was walking to work, I was praying for God's provision for my job. But, you know, all that time I, I, that I'm in a job, I'm relying on God and I'm seeking God's direction and his help and, and kind of worshipping him in that. Does that make sense? So I'm not waiting for that point of, of obvious need. I recognize I need God to help me all that time. All that, you know, even when, it, when uh, it's not like I'm unemployed, but I, I need God's provision to do my job. I need God to continue to release his provision in my life. And God's been so gracious, you know, in that job and kind of promotion and resources and favor with people and all those sorts of things. But the point is, victory is not an event. It's not, you know, for a one-off time where we need God to come through. It's a lifestyle. It's about how we live. And I wonder whether, you know, the, things unfolded as they did in chapter 7 when they forgot that, when they thought they didn't need to keep on fighting anymore. So Israel forgot to let God be God. That was the problem. And there were consequences for that. And this is the second thing I want to talk about. Forget to fail. Forget to fail. When When you forget to let God be God, you fail. Now, there is an obvious failure that we read about. Now, again, I don't know much about armies and going into battle. It's not my specialist subject. But I imagine that two important rules when you go out to engage the enemy are don't get killed and don't run away. You know, I kind of think in the theater of war that they're important principles. And there's some immediate things that we see as a consequence of Israel forgetting to let God be God. 36 men lost their lives and Israel had to run away and to flee. But you know what? That wasn't the only way in which they failed. That wasn't the only thing that went wrong. We read about how the people responded. Those who were still alive, they responded with fear. And it says in Joshua chapter 7, it says their hearts melted. Their hearts melted. And that expression, uh, you know, for the, the people with good memories among you, that expression, we've already met it a couple of times so far in the book of Joshua. But in those times, it's applied to the enemies of Israel. It's applied to those in the face of God coming with his people, the people 
their hearts melt in fear. Now, isn't this interesting that suddenly Israel stopped trusting in God, they start behaving like everyone else, and they experience what everyone else experiences. Their hearts melt away. They become anxious. They become fearful. When God, when they're not experiencing God with them, they experience what everyone else experiences. When they choose an ordinary life, they get ordinary results. And Joshua, even Joshua, is not immune to this. So Joshua's response, he says to, to God, well, oh, why did we even cross the Jordan? Why were we not content to remain on the other side of the Jordan? And again, if you have kind of know your Bible at all and you know the Old Testament up to this point, that might sound a bit familiar. And it's because that was exactly the attitude of the Israelites that Moses led out of Egypt, the faithless, godless people of Israel who had to spend 40 years wandering around in the desert. And they said, well, there are not enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out to this point. And here is Joshua saying, oh, things have gone wrong. Oh, would the, I wish, Lord, that you hadn't done that incredible, miraculous victory bringing us through the Jordan. Oh, I wish you hadn't enabled us to take such amazing ground and to take the... I wish you hadn't caused the walls of Jericho to crumble because now we're in this difficult position. Suddenly, Joshua who's supposed to be leading the new generation full of hope and promise, the new generation that's replaced the old one, who had that attitude of, you know, God can't do this and we're all going to fail. And Joshua's supposed to be leading the people out in hope and with, you know, a new promise. And suddenly he is behaving just like they behaved because they forget to let God be God. And that whole thing about, about generations is really important. Here, If we had read on in, in Joshua chapter 7, you read that about how the sin is uncovered and the consequences for our Achan are that he dies, that he has to die, it's capital punishment. And it can, when you read that, it can seem a bit harsh, but you have to understand here that there is something generational. That old generation who were faithless, who couldn't trust God, they had to, God said, I cannot start something new with these people. As before I bring the people into the promised land to, to you know, make it their home, to establish them as a people in this land, this generation, this faithless, godless generation has to die out because I need to build with people of faith who are going to trust me. There is a generational thing. So here, right at the start of chapter 7, now they're in the promised land, when this kind of faithlessness, when this old attitude starts rearing its head, God has to deal with it. Because we can't, you know, if you multiply a problem, then you just get more of the problem. You know, if you photocopy something which has got a load of typos in, all the copies have got a load of typos. And God was trying to build something generationally here. So right at the start, God's people needed to be right. They needed to be a people who were consecrated to God. And, you know, probably most people who are a, parent here can understand how this works. You know, most of us who are parents can see something in our children in the way that they speak or the way that they behave sometimes and think, oh, that's not good. Oh, hang about. I do that, don't I? Or probably what we actually see is my husband or wife does that, don't they? Because it's easier to spot, you know, the faults of other people um, than our own. But we understand, don't we, that, that kind of what's going on in our life has an effect 
on those around us. Yeah, what's going on in me has an effect on, on people. It has an effect on my family, how I'm doing with God. I've spoken to too many men on encounters who have come and said, you know, I, I have got this issue in my life and I know that it affects how it goes with my family. I know that, you know, when I'm doing this, that it changes the atmosphere in my home from an atmosphere of peace and there is kind of clashing with my wife and there is kind of uh, anger with my children. Not, not because of anything being out in the open, but the spiritual dynamic, the spiritual effect of sin, of refusing to let God be God, changes how it is with those around us. You know, we know that, but, uh, you know, I, I know that when I'm doing, like, really on top of my game with God and really sharp, that actually there is a greater blessing for the people in my city group, that I pray for them more and I have more faith and more vision for them. And, and also, I know, you know, there's been times where my pastor says to me, oh, do you know what, Steve, I've been praying for you all this week. And I can look back and think, yeah, I know, I, I, could, I felt the effect of it. Because what is going on in us has a bigger impact than just our life. That's writ large through Joshua chapter 7. You know, I, I know that. I see that at work even. You know, there's not a, a kind of a spiritual relationship, a spiritual authority relationship, but I know how I'm doing with God affects how I'm able to support and help the people around me and to, to work with them. How it's going, what's going on in me affects what goes on uh, in other people. There is this kind of generational bigger picture. So the consequences are bigger than just 36 lives lost. But we're not going to stop there. We're not going to stop there because there is hope. There is a response that can be made. And so the, the third point, the third thing that I want to say is about being right for the fight because God helps Israel to put it right. And the starting point is, is Joshua. He has a right heart response. So he recognizes. Not only does, does kind of individual sin and how we are with God and how well we're connected with God, not only does that affect my life, but it affects other people. And actually, God, it affects you. And so he says to God, you know, if we die out, if we become an object of scorn and of shame in the land, well, what does that say about you, God? What are people going to say about you? And so there is this motivation about God and his glory. You know, I, um, and, and sort of thinking about the people, you know, one of the reasons why I, you know, want to do the right thing, one of the reasons why I want to pursue God and to get into God and be devoted to him and look to him is because it's the right thing to do. You know, the Bible says that our motivation to live holy lives is because God is holy. But do you know what? There is that, that, that extra um, blessing that comes to other people is a significant kind of motivation and help to, to appreciate it. But for Joshua, he, he realizes out of a heart response, well, Lord, this is about your name and your glory in the land. And then there is also a kind of right response in terms of action. So Joshua and the people, they tear their clothes, they get on their knees, they put dust on them. And it's a real indication of, Lord, we're sorry, we are you know, repentant and uh, we are um, like dismayed at what has happened. And God says to them, I don't want your sacrifice, I want your obedience. Don't come and do all of this while there is still this ticking time bomb of sin undealt with. You know, and there is obviously a time to, to get on our knees and to pray and to seek God and to fast. But when we know about sin, when it's live, then we need to deal with it. Otherwise, we're just, you know, we're like the, the kind of the teenage boy. He goes and spends the afternoon playing football, but then rather than having a shower, just gets like a can of links, antiperspirant, and just like tries to cover himself in this to block out the smell, you know, to try and just kind of compensate have a shower. 
So if you've ever had a slow puncture on your car, and it means that every, every couple of days you need to put fresh air in your car, you know what we should do? We should get a new tire rather than just try and compensate for the fact that there's a dirty great hole in this existing one. And God says, don't just pump air into a leaking tire. Don't just try and cover up the bad smell. Do something about the problem. Do something about the fact that someone has taken something devoted to me, this ticking time bomb of sin that's going to go off. You need to deal with it. And that, we, you know, that, there are all sorts of ways in which we can try to do something to compensate for something wrong. And what we need to do is to fix it. So you know, we, we can kind of put lots of money in the offering and be really generous, but, but to do it to compensate for the fact that we're stealing from our employer. Or that we can be really you know, such a people person and really gregarious, but we can do it because we're holding unforgiveness about one person. God says, yeah, this is great, but you need to put right the issue that is wrong. So there is a right response to be made. And also God made Israel right. There is something about being made right. And for, for the nation of Israel, the sin had to be purged from the camp. And like I said, uh, Achan was killed as a response. Now, there are so many ways in which I'm glad to be a New Testament priest and not an Old Testament priest. You know, I'm glad that I don't have to chase lambs around the field and slaughter them glad that I don't have to come around your houses and check out the mold and the mildew like Old Testament priests are instructed to do. And I'm also glad I don't have to take anyone out into the car park and throw stones at them. Because you know what? Jesus has taken, for us living here today, Jesus has taken all the consequence of our wrongdoing. He took it upon himself on the cross. He took all the stones and all the beating. He took all of our wrongdoing upon himself. And he took all of God's righteous response and anger and wrath and that, about that wrongdoing upon himself at the cross. So we don't have to. So we don't have to. And there's just so many things that are so incredible. I think what, what God did through Jesus on the cross is just, just genius. And it's just so amazing. And I, I, I'm constantly uh, blessed and helped by the fact that this great exchange took place on the cross. Because not only did Jesus take all our sin and the consequences of our sinfulness, but we are credited with his righteousness. That means that when God looks at us, he sees that we are right with God. He doesn't see the, all the reasons why we should be God's enemy. He sees Jesus' perfect righteousness and record. He looks at me and he sees perfect obedience. He looks at me and sees, you know, perfectly responding to God. Not because of, of the great life that I lead, but because I'm clothed with Christ's righteousness. When he looks at me, he sees Jesus. And so for us, you know, our response is to come back to God and say, Jesus, please would you forgive me and cleanse me from that unrighteousness. God makes us right for the fight. You know, in the face of the areas of our life where maybe we, we haven't let God be God, in, in response to what we see, where we see that, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm suffering these effects because of that, so we can come to God and we can ask for forgiveness and Him to make things right. Even just having that heart for God, even having the, the strength and the motivation and the ability to put right what is wrong, comes from God's help, God's spirit. So I want to invite us, um, just as we kind of come to the end of this time, to respond 
to that. I want to invite us to stand. And just as we've talked about the importance of being dependent on God and looking to him for direction, just want to spend a minute to pray and to ask God really to shine his light into our hearts, into our minds, into our lives. Again, I picture just like a, a torch or a flashlight shining a strong beam around a room so you can see what is in it. God wants to shine his light into our lives to show us you know, what is there in there that needs removing from our life? What needs putting right? What are the areas in our life where we are not letting God be God, whether in our devotion, whether in our direction, whether in our dependence. Lord, would you shine your light into our lives? Lord, would you highlight, be they seemingly small or be they big, obvious things, would you highlight to us, Lord, what it is? believe there are people here this morning there's something about that response of Israel and of Joshua their their hearts melted or that sense of I wish God that you hadn't brought me to this place that kind of despair and fear and anxiety you know what God doesn't want us to be fearful and anxious he hasn't given us a spirit of fear he's given us a spirit of love he's given us a spirit of power soundness of mind and I believe if you can identify with that and as God shines a light on your life if you're able to repent to say sorry to God please take this away from my life that he will not only cleanse us from that but change our thinking to change our attitude Lord I want to pray that you help us to make that response this morning in the name of Jesus Jesus' name. Jesus' name. I also believe there are people just struck about that thing, about how Joshua and the people seem to be going back to, to where the nation were 40 years ago. And I think there, are, there is there's something about kind of going round in circles, that of, of kind of thinking, yes, I've, I've broken through, and then finding ourselves back, back in the place we used to be. You know, we're not the same person that we used to be. I believe there is a, a confession to make this morning. And it's this confession. It's, I'm done with the desert. You know, we've been through times where God has taught us things, where God has done things, where God has taken things away from our life, where God has added things to our life. And I think there is a confession to say, I'm done with the desert. What God has done in my life, I'm going to move on. I'm in this point and I'm going forward now. I'm not going back. Do you think you can say that with me? I'm done with the desert. So we say it again. I'm done with the desert. Yeah, I'm not going back to the things that God has already delivered me from. I'm not going back to the things that God has set me free from. I'm not going to have to relearn the things that God has taught me because I am looking forward, because of God's grace, because of God's help, because I'm not that person I used to be. I am this person here who God is at work in and bringing glory upon glory to his name. 
also want to put a, a confession to make about the power of the blood of Jesus. You know, on Friday night, we had a great time of re going through this series on Joshua and making declarations and confessions about what we've uh, talked about and what we've looked at. And you know, it is really powerful. It, it's not about magic words. But when God has said something to us, when we've received it in our hearts and we've understood it in our minds, when we speak it out, it is like the first step on seeing that worked out in our lives. It is a, a confession of faith that God has started something. This is the conviction that has gripped my heart and I'm going to speak it out because that is powerful. And so let me read this for you. This is the summary of three verses in the Bible that speak about the power of the blood of Jesus. And I said, by the blood of Jesus, I have been bought for God and his church, and I overcome. He expresses the fact that I belong to God, that I need to let God be God. I, I have a new master. And because of that blood that bought me, because of that blood that has made right my sin, because of that blood that cleanses me and buys me out of the old and brings me into the new, I overcome. Can we say that together? By the blood of Jesus, I have been bought for God and His church, and I overcome. Yeah, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the truth of that word. And I pray this morning, Lord God, that you set people free from any lie that is in opposition to that, that any lie that says that I can't and I won't and I shouldn't, Lord, any lie of the enemy that would stop us expressing the full truth and letting you be you in our lives. Any lie that makes us hold back, any lie that crosses our arms in the face of the powerful revelation of who I can be in Christ Jesus, any lie that is contrary to the fact that says that God is able to do, you know, anything he wants, nothing is impossible for God, and everything is possible for the person who believes in him. Lord, we want to pray for freedom, we want to pray for life, and we want to pray for victory in us as individuals and us as a church, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Just quickly to, um, kind of off the back of that, felt um, that there's someone here who very much feels like they're stuck in a maze. Steve used that idea of going around in circles again and again, and I saw a picture in my spirit of a maze and someone stuck in it, and every time they were you went around the corner, you thought this was going to be this, this is the solution, but actually just ended up in the same place again, another dead end. Um, and you're very much running out of energy for just keeping going. And you know, one of the things about the grace of God is, and Pastor Clive used to describe it like a helicopter from above. It's the help you need that just comes from above and lifts you right out of the situation when you can't just move anywhere else. And that's available this morning. So if, I specifically really felt that that maze was important. It's a lostness, a sense that there's another dead end coming up. If you feel like that, I'd really encourage you. This is an opportunity and this is the moment the Holy Spirit has for you to respond. So come, get prayer. You know, God will, by his grace, come down from above and just lift you out um, of what you've been stuck in.